welcome, or welcome back. Hi, it's your host and narrator of the Primrose Chronicles podcast, Marty Young. Allow me to be the first to wish you a Merry Christmas. And if not the first, by the end of these next three installments, to be the most frequent conveyor of holiday greetings with whom you come in contact this month. The plan as I begin this end-of-the-year trip back into events that even today bring the Advent personal to me, and hopefully to you, is to take a look back at distinct perspectives regarding these activity-packed days of December. My hope that they spark your anticipation of my own efforts as I plan to offer a retrospective on the trees, the toys, the tunes, and the traditions of Christmas. Sorry about the alliteration. Old sermon habits die hard. This week's installment will focus in on the young family tree and its evolution over the years. It's episode 28, entitled O Tannenbaum. That German allusion is to pay tribute, however briefly, to Nat King Cole and his rendition of the carol that was one of the offerings of that well-worn The Christmas Album, but also to Fraulein Ayango, my high school German teacher who had us memorize all the words in the original language in my second year of taking Deutsch. As a result, it's yet another one of those earworms that I talk about back in episode 19. By no means, in this telling... Am I suggesting that our treatment of the tree, from its selection all the way through disposing of the Yule foliage, offered the best holiday treatment of that central feature in an American Christmas celebration? If anything, I hope you'll step away from whatever you're doing this year, whether decorated by LED lights, computerized to turn on and off by Alexa, and reconnect once again with that simpler time of the fabulous 50s and the sensational 60s. So, Calling all baby boomers and wannabes, let's get the trees off the lot, into the house, and get on with the decorating. And hopefully we can enjoy it a few days before the needles start falling off. My first remembrances of a Christmas tree with me in attendance are probably more formed by black and white photos than actual memories. Little collections of 3 by 3 pictures bound in paper albums with orange covers provided by the drugstore photo department showed me Don and Dorothy's firstborn, beside an obviously brightly decorated tree, three times my size, and me standing in front of a pile of presents, apparently all for me. Later years brought a little sister Nancy into the frame. Now there were two, but the number of gifts did not seem to grow that much. Same was true when Dave came along. And once Jim and Bill came along, the gifts seemed to spread out more, but there was a time that I feared my present number was declining annually as I had to learn to share with siblings. As you can tell, I was a late bloomer when it came to appreciating the adage, it is better to give than to receive. Much of that development of the Christmas spirit will unfold over the next few episodes. Today, I want to focus on the first trappings of the Advent, at least for the residents of 4425 Primrose. I had friends whose Families had different schedules for purchasing their tree, putting it up, decorating it, and taking it down. Not sure any two did it the same way. I, for one, however, felt badly for the families of my buddies who did not buy, stand, or decorate until the weekend, the week, or even the night before Christmas. I even knew one classmate whose grandparents lived with his family who went to bed with his front room looking as always awakening the next morning to a fully decorated space, complete with tree, garland, lights, and, of course, presents. No way that would fly with the young brood. 
Our move through the month of activities, community, congregational, and family will be the centerpiece of a later TPC installment, but for us, it was always great to have them all grounded in a fully decorated and lighted tree. Now, we were not, however, a scrape the Thanksgiving carcass, wash and dry the good china, repolish the family silver, and then head out the door for the Christmas tree lot. No, there was a suitable dead time between Turkey Day and the 12-plus days of Christmas for especially Mom to catch her breath, but the 1st of December did not pass before we launched into the frenetic pace that would be in years future remembered as the most wonderful time of the year. Every day of the wall calendar hanging by the phone in the kitchen seemed to be filled with events, but the first item on the list was pick out a tree. Now, tree selection was always a family affair. It wasn't the return to Walton's Mountain event that some families calendared with a trip to the country, a relative's farm, or a state park forest with saw and hatchet in hand. I watched those folks load their cars up, not only with tools of the process, but also a thermos bottle or two of hot chocolate and cups for all and even a bag of marshmallows. Returning several hours later, usually with an admittedly scrawnier version of a tree than ours. However, they had the pride of having tramped through the woods, felled the mighty pine, dragged it back to the car, strapped it to the roof or the trunk. I mean, that all sounded so pioneer. Our escapade was much more tame, but resulted in the same outcome. We, too, drove out of the neighborhood, with the first decision to be made being, what lot do we go to? Many a church youth group, civic organization, or scout troop had stands on vacant street corners, and each was vying for your $5. If you only half listened, you would have thought they were selling used cars based on their spiel. From how your funds would benefit their organization, to the freshness of the selections, to the extras they'd thrown in if they made the sale, world hunger would be erased. Their selections had just been cut down that morning, and after you paid at the table, willing and eager workers would carry it to your car, strap it securely to the roof, and come by the house later and carry it in if need be. All those promises went out the window, if world hunger was ever in the window, once they made their sale and moved on to the crowd that had not yet made their selections. But that was fine with us. Dad had brought work gloves, sturdy rope, and a blanket to put down on the car top to keep the finish from getting too destroyed by the sap. When children were fewer, our earliest trips were made in our 1948 Chrysler New Yorker, and our tree usually stood between six and seven feet tall, and it was propped on and strapped to the rear bumper, resting on the trunk lid, pointing above the roof of the car. We would go home with the rear windows open because the rope looped around the trunk a couple of times and ran above the back seat and knotted where the ends came together on the deck of the rear window. As our family grew in size, we also moved into the station wagon world. It was even easier then, since the entire tree could be tied to the flat car roof. The ropes then ran under the door frame to be tied together underneath, keeping your cargo in place. The only dangerous result of such a jerry-rig was to have a loosely tied tree slide forward on braking, down across the windshield, obstructing the driver's view, necessitating a pause on the side of the road for readjustment. Don't ask me how I know. 
I'll just say it's not a story that took place during the Primrose Chronicle years. Fortunately, we were not, like our neighbors, going over the river and through the woods to get back home. One of our more adventurous families often told of the wonderful time they had chopping down a tree, drinking hot cocoa on a large log, and then losing their entire load on a state road because they were returning to the big city too quickly and too engrossed in the carols in the car. I guess there was something to be said for the local tree lot. Anyway, arriving in the driveway, knots were untied, the tree was dragged to the patio just adjacent to the front door stoop and propped up against the wall. The tree was home, but the home was not necessarily ready for it. We go in the side door off the driveway, as always, through the kitchen, down the hall, and into the living room. The Christmas tree stand had to be located. Some of the furniture needed to be moved slightly to accommodate the fresh and fragrant addition, all while we kids got into the boxes to peruse again the ornaments and the lights that had been carefully packed away 11 months prior and lugged down into the basement only to now be brought front and center in these early days of December. There were several strands of bulbs, all of which had to be tested. If one bulb was out or broken, none of the lights in the strand would shine, so on a 15 to 20 light strand it meant unscrewing each bulb, removing it from the socket, screwing in a known-to-be-good bulb, and move up and down the line until you found the bad bulb so indicated by having the entire strand burst into brilliance. Sounded great in theory, but if there were two or more bulbs that were bad, that process wouldn't work because you still had at least one bulb that was affecting the electrical current. But this was no problem for this modern family. Dad had a bulb tester, and he could identify the culprits causing the blackout, and such a discovery always gave him a great sense of accomplishment. Once all the strands were working, we moved on to the bubble lights. They were a much simpler process. The long, clear glass tubes, each in its own socket, contained a colored liquid, methylene chloride by name. And if that tube had not been broken and the liquid lost since last year, the full strand was plugged in, the liquid was heated by the current, and in a short time, bubbles of CO2 began to form and rise through the liquid, popping at the top, but not before other bubbles formed at the bottom to rise all over again. Thus, bubble lights. What else were you going to call them? And we were one step closer to being ready for the tree. Ornaments then needed to be checked for caps with rings and hooks and, again, for any breakage. There were the large balls and the small ones. There were ceramic angels and plastic Santas. Some had been handed down from our grandparents as they downsized or didn't want to put up a tree anymore, knowing that they would celebrate with us. Others were the first ones that a young married couple had purchased for their first Christmas together. And still others that had been added in remembrance of the family that they were creating. There were also the handmade school ornaments that had to be carefully placed for display and in reach of the young artist whose project it had been. The storage boxes also contained the ceramic nativity of Mary Joseph and the baby Jesus that would be encircled by shepherds and sheep, wise men and camels, all prominently set on the top of the TV, carefully arranged around the TV rabbit ears. In all likelihood, the Christmas stockings for each family member 
would be in the bottom of the box, neatly pressed by the ornament boxes and ready to be hung on the staircase bookshelves until Santa came. At that point, Santa would fill them and move them to the areas of the living room chairs and couches where he would leave the rest of our presents. There were a couple of early years when Mom attempted to teach us to string popcorn for hanging on the tree, but that venture proved unsuccessful. Since the sewing needles and the thread would not go through the kernels without cracking them or injuring the party assembling them, so we would just eat the bowlful, and we never attempted again as long as I can remember anyway. In sacks, alongside the boxes, were the colored construction paper chains that would replace that popcorn. They all started as school art projects, one-inch strips, four to six inches long, multiple colors, alternated and interlocked, pasted, closed, creating any length of chain that you wanted. You see, come Christmas break, our teachers, in an effort to clean their rooms for the holidays, sent the chains that had framed their bulletin boards and trimmed their trees and wrapped their desks, they sent them home with the kids that wanted to use them in their homes and put them on their trees. Well, not only did we take all that our teachers would give, we also made more for ourselves at the kitchen table. That meant that every stick of furniture that had a shelf, a ledge, every plant that had a branch would be a landing spot for a chain with most of us wrapping the tree once it came through the front door and took its place of honor in the center of the front window. With all the preparations completed, Dad would swing wide the front door, grab the base of the tree, and drag it to the tree stand to insert it and set it upright. Seldom was it a one-man job. Mom would help steady it and make certain it was nestled squarely in its base. One of us kids, early on it was me, would lie on the floor opposite where Dad was working to get it properly straight and screw in the various posts in the collar of the base that would secure the tree. I was only to tighten until instructed to stop, then reach around to the opposite side and tighten the post there. Then do the same thing front and back. And in theory, the tree was now securely settled in its location for the next few weeks. I said in theory because issues like a before-that-time-unnoticed crooked trunk or an uneven cut of a base or something meant that when Mom and Dad stepped away, it was not unusual for the tree to start to fall. A quick grab and the straightening process began anew. A step away led to either a sigh of relief or another quick grab and a soft expletive leading to another attempt. And if not that, a third time usually was the charm and the decorating could begin. Lights went on first, and it was Dad's task and his alone. He affixed the alligator clips to the base of each C9 or C7 bulb to the branch, starting at the top and moving down and around toward the bottom. Since it sat in front of the large pane picture glass window, Dad's long arms were perfect for stretching behind the tree where Mom grabbed it on the other side and held it until Dad came around to take it from her across the front and around until it reached the end of that strand. Then on to the next strand, making certain that the portion of the line without lights went in close to the tree and down where it could be joined to all the others, all that would be plugged into an extension cord or two. Seldom could we put as many lights on the tree as we thought, which was usually about 200, because it would blow a fuse. Bubble lights and new strands had to replace colored bulbs rather than serve as additions. Our fuse box was very sensitive to power searches. 
and we often tested its limits, though, usually resulting in Dad traveling into the basement to replace the one fuse that had blown. Once completed, it was now Mom's job to review Dad's efforts and direct the movement of certain light placements, once or twice even before they were turned on and maybe one time following. Now, with all the lights properly distributed, all the family members were allowed to select ornaments and cover the branches. Different age kids provided different viewpoints on ornament arrangement on the tree. Nothing was really said when multiple ornaments were arranged in clusters or hung from the same branch. Only after the kids had done all they could and gone as far up on the tree as they could reach, usually after we went to bed, then proper attention was given to the tree's grandeur, and the next morning we marveled at what a great tree we had on display in our house. Once all the ornaments and chains had found their albeit temporary homes, out came the tinsel. Those narrow strands of aluminum were the piece de resistance when it came to the tree's completion. Again, I know there are those who carefully and evenly hang one strand of tinsel at a time, making certain every branch receives some glitter. Others stood at a distance and tossed hands full toward a spot in the tree, hoping that it would spread as it flew through the air. The youngs were of the latter, even to throwing it around and over each other. That was perhaps when the greatest laughter arose, and it continued until all the bags of tinsel had been used. It was now time to turn on the lights and stand and ooh and ah the masterpiece that would be this year's centerpiece of celebration. With that, our attention turned to toasting our accomplishment. For a night, anyway, all was right in the young household, and I called for glasses of eggnog around with me calling dibs on any amount left in the Robert's Dairy Court bottles. Shortly thereafter, it was off to bed, knowing that the next weeks of Christmas could begin. It would be easy to end this tale and have every season move forward into happily ever after, but in truth, if you notice my expression of caveat, I said, for one night anyway. Actually, in the days following, there were often issues with the tree. One year... As the tree came in out of the cold and began to warm in the house, hundreds of little black beetles were awakened from their winter slumber within the branches, and we had an infestation that required multiple cans of raid and regular foot stompings and careful examination of sheets and pillows before turning in, visions of dancing sugar plums notwithstanding. Another year? The tree's balance lasted only into the wee hours of the first night before it came crashing down destroying delicate ornaments, breaking bulbs on various strands, and invoking more than a couple less-than-soft epithets. Many years, the green trees of the lot, promised to be oh-so-fresh, began dropping dry needles in such numbers that it sounded like the tinkle of little bells as they fell on the ornaments below. And that was to say nothing of the now-brown carpet that covered the living room floor. It was the last fresh tree year, that we took the tree to the curb for pickup a full three days before the scheduled Yuletide celebration, and I guess that was the last straw. I was 11, and it was the year we bought our first and only aluminum Christmas tree. It was not that nouveau. They'd been around for a few years, just pretty pricey. But bugs and balance 
and brown needles took their toll, and citing those downsides and the overall savings of one-year expense made for a five- to ten-year investment, my dad bought a seven-foot aluminum tree off the hardware store showroom floor right after Christmas at a big bargain. He got them to return it to its original packaging, boxed it up, and then brought it home to be placed in the basement until next year with the other decorations. But soon, it was again post-Thanksgiving, and we were introduced to what seemed to make us the Space Age Primrose Jetsons. Reading the instructions for the tree carefully, there were three two-and-a-half-foot-long silver-painted one-and-a-half-inch dowel rods with couplings to attach to each other and then to be placed in a small Christmas tree stand base. Into each dowel rod were holes drilled to hold the branches. Then came the proper placement of the branches, which were individually sleeved and numbered in paper bags. And once the sleeves were removed, you found a metal rod again sprayed silver with dozens of narrow aluminum strands affixed to represent futuristic needles. Different rods were of different shapes, but if properly placed in the numbered holes, voila, you had a Christmas tree-shaped structure. It was light in weight, harbored no infestations, was easily erected, and its balance was maintained. It only had to be purchased once, easily stored and restored. It made for the perfect holiday addition. It did have its downside by its critics, however. It would accommodate ornaments, and its silver glow set off its brilliant colors, but a warning accompanied each tree. Electric light stands should not be placed on the branches because they could cause electrocution by folks touching the tree when lit, so do not adorn with such. Now, I could not find any verified cases of such recorded demise, maybe something like Ralphie's you'll-shoot-your-eye-out warning. But the lack of colored lights was offset by a rotating colored wheel that sat away from the tree and, when lit, showed colors of red, green, blue, and yellow on the needles of the stationary tree. That was the way it was supposed to work. But remember, Dad had bought a floor model. And as we discovered almost a year later, it had not come with that all-magical rotating wheel. But this was my dad. And upon his discovery of the absence, he quickly determined a solution. A marvelous, a wonderful solution. As I mentioned in an earlier episode on the music of my life, Dad had years before bartered for a Wurlitzer jukebox that played 78 RPM records. It sat in our basement for several years since the music world had basically switched to 45s with the large center hole. And so the Wurlitzer, while it was still play the early 50s hits, it was of no use in listening to the current Billboard offerings, the ones that I was getting into. Those had to be played on the record player that I had in my bedroom or with an insert on the phonograph in the kitchen. What did still work perfectly on the jukebox was the psychedelic color wheel that shone on the front of the upright jukebox. Dad excused himself from our Christmas preparation. We moved on to the window and mirror glass wax stencils. More about that in a couple of weeks. When he came up a few hours later, though, he had an answer to our lacking color wheel. In his mind, it was really a major improvement. And I would have to agree that it was pretty ingenious. 
He carried up a wooden box and a jukebox color wheel and a platform that was a plexiglass circle mounted on a slowly spinning axle. Before our very eyes, he assembled his most recent solution to another thorny problem. The lights from the Wurlitzer front sat in a metal tray beneath the color disc that was now stationary. Those colors would project upwards, out of the box, through the metallic branches of the structure above it. The motor that originally turned the wheel now slowly turned the entire clear plexiglass circle upon which the aluminum tree would sit and itself slowly rotate, with colors flooding out from below, lighting it on all sides with different ornaments and different hues, and it could all be seen inside and outside as well. The box was just high enough to send the tree all the way to the eight-foot ceiling and provided a shelter beneath it for the multiple presents that would come over the next several weeks to rest beneath it. Now, it may sound bizarre, and I'm sorry I can't describe it any better, but it was our unique tree for years. Either until my senior year of high school or maybe even my first year of college when we finally went to an artificial green tree. Now, doing research for these Christmas podcast chapters, I read an article that a Charlie Brown's Christmas, the TV show, was really the demise of the aluminum Christmas tree. And you can Google that and analyze it for yourself. I only know that aluminum trees now are again a part of the retro scene and cost a whole lot more than the $5 Dad paid out to keep our house bug and needle free. It probably helped that he kept several times that amount in his pocket over the years since he only had to go to the basement and not a tree lot early every December. I, for one, must say, a rotating aluminum Christmas tree fit nicely as a background for the toys and the tunes and the other traditions that I'll be sharing with anyone who listens in over the next several weeks. It tempers the warnings of today's experts who decried our trees and ornaments and tinsel with health warnings including electrocution, asbestos, and lead. How did we ever make it to adulthood to say nothing of our retirement years? Well, with two more installments devoted to the trappings surrounding mid-20th century holiday celebrations, it looks like I'm in for an extended memory stay on Primrose Lane, or Avenue. I hope I can squeeze them all in. The door will be open again soon for you to drop by for yourself. It's beginning to look a lot like Christmas, so enjoy every reflection, hope, and I'm continuing to wish you Merry Christmas.